Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. From KQED. Hey everyone, from KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati, in for Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we're joined by a Bay Area mayor with an incredible life story who's grappling with racial injustice in the suburb of Antioch from the 19th century to the present day. Antioch Mayor Lamar Thorpe was born in jail, raised by a loving Mexican foster family, and is now leading his East Bay City with an eye on police reform and making amends for past wrongs. We're going to talk to him in just a minute. But first, Guy, um, at least for political insiders, news of the week here in California, those districts are getting drawn by the Independent Citizens Redistricting Commission. This is congressional districts, assembly, Senate. Um, What do we know about the maps that this independent body has put out so far? Well, we finally have draft maps. This is process has been going on for months and months. And finally, last night, Wednesday night, uh, the commission voted to approve draft maps for Congress, Senate, State Assembly. Um, And this is really, you know, getting down to the wire. They're going to finalize these district lines by December 27th. And then that's it for the next 10 years. It's definitely been a winding road, right? You tune into these commission meetings. They go on and on for hours and hours late into the night. There's Welcome Welcome to government. Totally. And there's been, you know, moments where They're drawing the lines live. They've, you know, pursued lines in certain directions for a couple hours and then said, you know what, the population is not going to work. Let's scrap it and go back to square one. So it's messy. But I think what's getting lost in that is the messiness is because it's public. This is a citizens commission that's doing this before, you know. The messiness is kind of the point, right? right? Like, Like, it would be a lot cleaner the old way, which is just, you know, the politicians go in a room and decide how they all stay in office. The point of having a citizens redistricting commission is they're doing this in a live broadcast that anyone can tune into. And as a reporter, you're really getting to see the, you know, communities of interest express themselves and the commissioner's way. How do we put communities or split communities in different ways to create these maps? It is just a much more transparent process. And I think it's no secret the people that are squeaking the loudest about this is the consulting class, really. Right. The people whose jobs are going to depend on the way these districts. I mean, we were talking earlier, we should say, just like looking on Twitter, there's a lot of sort of like hand wringing and, and frustration among some folks who are watching this most closely. And I, I just I do think that to your point, that is not how most Californians will experience this. Right. They'll see the final maps. They'll, you know, hopefully know <laughs> We're here to tell you that this is, you know, this is the opposite of gerrymandering, ideally, right? This is the type of independent um, kind of good government that we see a lot, especially of Democrats pushing across the country. And it also means that like that, that it doesn't 
just it doesn't benefit Democrats per se. Right. And I think that's part of the the grousing in California. Totally. And it's you know, and, and it's look, these are political strategists. These are their jobs. They want to file those 501 statement of intent to run forms and say one, two, three, Cancun, winter right. break. But I think, you know, the, this process is drawn out also because the census data came in late. And while, yes, there's certainly improvements that can be made. It it took a long time for the commission to post the work that it was doing online for everyone to see. But I think ultimately this process is playing out in a transparent way. I would also say it's too soon. There's already a lot of talk about like, you know, who's the winners and losers of current incumbents. I would even say let's pump the brakes on that because as we know, Congress, you don't have to live in the district. There could be a lot of musical chairs. We have a you know geriatric delegation in California. There could be retirements coming up in the next couple of months. All that could kind of scramble who is running for what uh, in in Not June of twenty twenty two. Just the news cycle. The, yes. Like who yeah. knows? Like if we were February twenty twenty and nobody knew what was coming. Um, well, speaking of the political class grousing on Twitter, uh, Governor <laughs> Governor Gavin Newsom did emerge from his cocoon of silence this week after what was it eleven days or so where we did not see him any public appearances. Uh, he had been set to go uh, to COP26 in Glasgow, this you know huge climate change of confab. He backed out, you know, kind of at the last minute. A lot of talk about it, and ultimately, what he said this week was, "Look, my kids staged an intervention. They said I needed to be here for Halloween, um, and I don't know. Like, I, we don't have to like." spend a ton of time on this guy. But it is interesting to me because I feel like the people who were most upset about Newsom's quote unquote absence were like us reporters, because that's our job. Right. And then, of course, there was like a lot of like right wing media sort of conspiracy theories. Um, I don't know. What do you make of like his explanation and the and the fallout, as it were? Well, I think we can say like it, it would have been a lot smoother if he had just said what he said 11 days earlier. Right. Even folks who are not Newsom allies came out and said, look, this is a reasonable explanation. The guy has, you know, been through a lot this last Doug year. Doug Osi, not exactly a paragon of <laughs> liberal uh, defensiveness. Right. Doug Osi, recall debate star, came and said, look, I wish I had, you know, taken the opportunity to spend more time like this with my kids. So you heard that. I think communications wise, Newsom could have said all this earlier, but I think it was way too much to do about Not a lot. I mean, one final thing I'll say is that I do think it's funny because, and I think we've discussed this on the show, like I've covered Gavin Newsom since he was mayor. He can be a little robotic as, you know, as a politician. And I actually think he's at his best when he's talking about his kids and family, when he is being human. Right. And so it's sort of ironic like this to me, this could have been an opportunity in a way for him to set that. And instead, it sort of devolved into this like Twitter war or whatever. Um, But I guess that's politics, baby. That is. Before we uh, get to our interview segment, I just want to briefly touch on some recall news. It keeps going. Uh, The recall attempt of District Attorney Chesa Boudin in San Francisco has qualified uh, for the June ballot. And then this week, we also heard that Los Angeles City Councilman Mike Bonin, there's a recall effort against him that submitted almost 40,000 signatures, I think, to get that towards the ballot. Clearly, there's different local issues at play in both of these. But I'm wondering, but actually, do you see commonalities? Yeah, I mean, I do. I, I think, first of all, just like all the recalls we're seeing, there's a frustration, I think, that stems directly from, you know, the situation broadly in America right now. And I think COVID specifically, I think people are feeling empowered to do this type of recall attempt, even if, you know, 
we know historically they're not actually usually that successful. Um, and I think that there's actually some real overlap between Bonin, who, you know, oversees Venice Beach, which has had a huge homeless problem, a lot of issue with street crime and other stuff. Chesa Boudin, um, a lot of the criticism of him is not just about, you know, charging rates and stuff, but really sort of seeking to point the finger at him for a range, a gamut of criminal activity. Um, and I think that both politicians are going to have this challenge of trying to kind of talk about the ideals that they ran on, which are very hard to put into practice. It is hard to change homelessness. It is hard to change, you know, an entire sort of philosophy around incarceration. And it's never going, one person can never do it, but I think both of them are going to be, you know, it's, it's going to be hard. Right. And I'll also say in the case of Bonin, this is a challenge that public officials face throughout the state, which is a lot of the same residents who will get, be the loudest complainers about, you know, homeless people in front of their houses or on their street will be the same people to show up and say, keep that supportive housing unit oh, out of absolutely. my neighborhood. Yeah. So you really are left in a difficult position as a local official on how to balance the long term building supportive housing, getting those developments built, and the short term, which is like, you know, maybe getting state dollars for shelters and stuff like that. And making that. people feel good about things, right? Because a lot of this is actually not just about what things look like, but how they make people feel. All right. We're going to leave it at that. We'll take a short break. And when we come back, we will be joined by Antioch Mayor Lamar Thorpe. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here today with guest host Guy Marzarati, and we are thrilled to welcome Lamar Thorpe to The Breakdown. He is mayor of the Bay Area city of Antioch. Mayor Thorpe, welcome. Yeah, Antioch being the greatest city God ever created. So thank you for having me, and I'm delighted to be with you. <laughs> well, we are really excited to talk with you. And I want to start at the beginning of your life, that is. Uh, you grew up in East L.A., and you actually grew up known as Martin Hernandez. Tell us a little bit about your family and early life. Yes, uh, I was uh, raised with Martin Hernandez. I was baptized in my first communion uh, as a Catholic, as Martin Hernandez. But my legal name is Lamar Thorpe. Uh, I was raised by a family or by my parents who immigrated here from Mexico, my mom being from Guadalajara and my dad being from uh, Juarez, Chihuahua. Uh, and so they met here and they, you know, had their first child. Uh, my mom had many miscarriages and so they decided to become uh, foster parents. 
Uh, and so I was one of the, I was their first foster child uh, after I was born in, in prison, and, and then two days later placed in the foster care system. So they are um, they are my family. And I've heard you say that growing up you felt race, but you tried to ignore it. I'm wondering, as a black kid in a Latino family, was that possible for you? Uh, well, you know, um, you know, it's funny, we didn't even consider ourselves Latino growing up. We were just Mexican. Right. So where I grew totally. up in El Torino, it was the majority really Mexican, and then we had a few leftover, I'll say, Italian families <laughs> uh, who migrated to different places in the country. And so it was, uh, it was, you know, we didn't have an issue with race. We certainly, you know, didn't, um, you know, we didn't really talk about it or anything like that. We just moved along with our lives. But once you stepped outside of the doors of our home or, you know, you know, when we would go to the malls on the weekends or play, you know, six flights, whatever it may be, um, race was certainly there. And you could feel it because then people would start asking questions like, Oh, why is he black? Or, mm-hmm. or, um, or, or as particularly as I got older, people would say, oh, you know, if, if he dates, you know, if I was dating one of my sisters, if, whether or not she was in an interracial relationship. <laughs> wow. So it was, um, so it was, it was odd. Yeah, I mean, and you also, Spanish was your first language, from what I understand. And um, I, I'm curious, like, how being a Spanish speaker impacted your education? Uh, well, I grew up to... Um, bilingual education. So we went to school only speaking Spanish, and then uh, we, somehow I don't even remember how we learned English, but we learned English as we went along. And, and uh, so the, the education part was was fine. Um, mid, I would not even say midway I think it was third grade where they placed me and my sister in in, in uh, English only classes, and so I struggled a little with, with that because all I could I think at the time I was you know, everything that I was learning was in Spanish. Uh, and so I fell behind, and then uh, as years went on, it just, it just got worse. And so eventually, I ended up in special education. By the time I got to fifth grade, because they coupled the my my test scores and my lack of being able to learn in English uh, in my behavior as some type of problem or, or disability, and so I ended up in special education. And your growing up, your neighbor uh, Elda Morales was interviewed, I think, for a, a campaign ad you did, and. She says she remembers you being set on becoming president one day. But it sounds like for you, the real political awakening was this, you know, plan to expand the 710 freeway near your community uh, in East L.A. Tell us a little bit about that. Did that kind of set off the light bulb for you? You know, I don't. Yeah, I'm sure I had desire to be president. I probably don't anymore. That's a hard job. Um, Yeah, I think I was. you know, it's interesting. I was fascinated with presidents because, uh, as you know, growing up, by the time I got to high school, I just could not really read and write. And so I used to use public transportation uh, to go to the downtown library. And the only thing I knew how to check out was videos. And so I take out, I check out videos of, of documentaries of former presidents. And so I was just fascinated with former presidents and politics. So I think that's where the desire of oh, maybe I'll become the president kind of came from. Because that was the only, those were the only types of videos I watched. I found them very fascinating. Um, but in terms of being involved politically, you know, I'm, I've just always been involved. Anywhere I, I've lived, I've involved myself in the political process. Obviously, growing up in East L.A., uh, it is political. Even when you're not in politics, you're, you're constantly fighting against uh, systems that um, 
that that just don't treat people of color right. And so growing up, we fought against the 710 expansion. And I didn't even know why. And it wasn't about the fact that they wanted to demolish all of our homes and then go into South Pasadena and Pasadena and, uh, and uh, go underground to protect, to protect the uh, upper income earning people's homes. That came later in life. That became that that light bulb went off as I reflected in life and became older. But it kind of just seemed like uh, we were just you, if you grew up in Elsa, you know you were against seven ten, and you really didn't know why. <laughs> <laughs> totally. Well, you kind of followed an interesting path after high school. I mean, you went to community college. I think you might have dropped out, and then you decided to join the Navy. What prompted that decision? I couldn't read and write, and so um, in order to continue the, the facade of, of uh, or hide hide the fact that I couldn't read and write, I said, well, I'll just join. I was actually going to join the Marines, uh, and most of the kids I went to, a lot of the kids that I went to high school with in special education ended up in the, or joined the Marines, huh. uh, and so I was, I was going to join, and um, my mom didn't think that was a very good idea. She thought... No, if you join the Marines, if there's a war, they'll send you first. Uh, so, so why not try this Navy? They say that in the Navy, you'll be on a ship and you'll be safe. Uh, and so, uh, so, I just, so I decided to, to join the Navy. And uh, because I was fascinated with president, I went out to the recruiter's office. They always ask these questions about, you know, things that you're interested in. And when they learned more about me, they started bringing out the posters of George Bush <laughs> uh, George Herbert Walker Bush in his, in his Navy uniform, John F. Kennedy, and, and all these different Jimmy Carter, and all these different presidents who had joined the Navy. And I said, well, I'm joining the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you can share, too, this story. I don't know if this was at the enlistment office, but where you were asked to fill out some paperwork, you know, identifying your race and ethnicity. Can you share that story yeah. with us, if you would. That was not at the recruiting office. That was at MEP. And so that's the processing center uh, right before you get uh, flown to boot camp. Uh, and so I was there uh, and, and uh, you know, filling out the paperwork. You go through the physical. And, um, and at the end, you speak to a personnel man who, you know, finishes off the paperwork. And we got to the question of race. And, uh, and I put, I jotted, I, I wasn't even Latino at the time. I think it was Hispanic. You had to put Hispanic. Hispanic, yeah. And so I put Hispanic. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and the gentleman says, uh, no, you, you can't put Hispanic. You have to put, um, black. And I said, well, no, my parents are from Mexico. I, I'm going to put Hispanic. And he looked at me and says, I'm looking right at you. You're black. <laughs> <laughs> and so he changed it. He took white out and he changed it for me. And I was like, oh man. <laughs> Turns out I'm black. <laughs> did that, I mean, was that a real moment for you? Like, did that change anything? I mean, when you think back on it, you're, you're, you're laughing. Was it, I mean, traumatic? Was it good? How, how do you sort of rate it? <laughs> I was indifferent. I mean, I was, irri- I was certainly irritated. I hated, I hate, I always hated explaining. I don't, I just, I always, and even to this, to this day, I, I have to explain myself, and I hate right. doing that. I'm in the Dominican Republican right now. And when I speak, they're like, oh, you don't talk like a, you know, your accent is a little different. You almost sound Mexican. I'm like, oh, my I am. <laughs> <laughs> and then they're like, um, and then they'll, they'll be, no, you're American. You must know your parents can't be Mexican. And I, and, and, I, and I just don't feel like I need to carry a, 
a slip that says, oh, I was in foster care and I need to do it. You know, so it just, it is irritating. And so in that moment, it was irritating. I didn't like it. But when I, the more, the, the, the bigger shock was in the Navy when I actually, for the first time, like, had to live with other black people from different parts of America. Mm. And, and, and in particular, uh, male blacks, which is, we just did not connect. Uh, female black women uh, kind of took me under their wing and, and tried to help out as much as possible. Like they caught me out of, you know, keep my grooming standards a little higher. <laughs> you know, how to comb my hair and whatnot. And, and, uh, and, and then introduced me to black, black culture. Yeah. And so, uh, but black men, they just, they would have a visceral reaction to me. And I think it had to do with maybe they thought they got the impression that I thought I was better than them, but I, I, I didn't think I was better than them. Uh, it, it's just, we misunderstood each other. But there was one particular moment where we were in the birthing and everybody was talking about different R&B songs and, and whatnot. And, and I, I'll never forget, I would always stand there and just kind of laugh things off. And, uh, and, and there was this one moment as they're talking about uh, R&B music, a Petty Officer Baker looks over at me and he says, so, what's your favorite R&B song? And uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I answered honestly, I, I said, I don't even know what R&B is. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and he, he actually got, he, he got very, he got, he was absolutely offended. Uh, he, he, he said, like, threatened me with physical violence. People would be pissed off at me. Wow. Man. And I'm just like, my God. I, and, so, and, I, and, you know, thinking back, I'm like, wow, I really didn't know anything about being black. Uh, but that's just the way <laughs> Like ranchera music. Ranchera yes. music, I know. Were you ever able to, to well, reconnect? No, music I did know. Uh, cumbias and, you know, right. uh, different bands. Tijuana, Bronco. Yeah. Know, I love telenovelas. Because I grew up as as a kid whose parents literally immigrated to the United States and didn't speak a lick of English. And so what else do you know? <laughs> yeah. Right. Were you ever able to, to reconnect with your biological mom or your black family? Well, it was, yeah. Yes, yes. I didn't reconnect with them. They found me. <laughs> and when I was in my second duty station in Connecticut... And so we were able to reconnect. I met my mom the same way she left. She, she, I should, I used to say she left me, but then I, obviously as I built a relationship with them, I realized uh, the way they took her from me and that was in prison. Yeah. Uh, and so she was serving one of her many sentences at, at the time at Cambridge Springs Correctional Facility for Women Outside of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. So I met my biological father, my biological sister and my nephew, whose name is Lamar Thorpe as well. She Aww. named him after me because my sister was five years older than me when I was when I was placed in foster care, and she remembered vividly coming to visit me when I was uh, in, you know, with my parents. And then they moved back to Pennsylvania, so she always had this void in her life that uh, she needed to, to kind of fill. Wow. <laughs> so she, she found me. She, she reunited all of us. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Guy Marzarati. We're talking with Lamar Thorpe. He is mayor of the Bay Area city of Antioch. And mayor, we've been talking about your childhood. Um, I, I, we should say you went to George Washington University. You got a master's degree there. Um, and now you are representing a city that's about one fifth black, one third Latino, a very diverse place. Do you think 
this childhood, your background, uh, your very crazy mix in some ways of family backgrounds has helped your ability to govern a city like this? Uh, I, I, I think, I think so. I think, you know, I got an email, not an email, a message from a resident earlier today, literally earlier today, asking, uh, am I trying to make Antioch all black? Hmm. And I was struck by that. Cause, you know, I really do more identify as, as not more, my culture, who I am, you know, when you go to my house, it's very clearly, <laughs> it's clearly Mexican. And I was struck by that. Uh, because we recently hired uh, a, an interim city manager, an African-American gentleman who uh, was a former San Francisco police captain. He lives in Antioch, and we thought he would have been the right fit. I'm particularly interested in police reform and having strong relationships with the police department, community policing and whatnot. And he, uh, I, you know, instead of thinking about, oh, um, the retired law enforcement officer will help build strong relationships between the elected folks and, and our police officers. Uh, the, the, the nonsense online is, oh, he's trying to make Antioch all black. Mm-hmm. Uh, negating the fact that it was the majority white city council that you know uh, voted to bring the, the black city attorney uh, to Antioch, making history there. Negating the fact that we were the first city in California to apologize to early Chinese immigrants. Uh, negating all these different factors. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, <laughs> so it was. It was interesting. It's just fascinating to see some of the nonsense you see online. You know, the same people who ask these types of questions about who are so fixated with race, but who claim not to be fixated with race, are the same people now trying to initiate a recall. Not me. <laughs> right. I mean, but this has been happening in Antioch for years, right? I mean, KQED even did a series, American Suburb, focusing on uh, changes in Antioch and uh, the feeling of a lot of black residents who had moved there in the 21st century who felt like a lot of the city's systems, whether it's the police or the schools, treated them as second class citizens. And I'm wondering if you feel like that has changed over the last few years since you've been uh, in city government and what you're doing to address that. Uh, I think some of that has changed. We have made some, some historic strides. We, we uh, I think we're going to make even more. Um, I mean, it, I didn't realize that apologizing to Chinese immigrants would have sparked not only uh, San Jose, but then later Los Angeles, and now the city, of San, city and county of San Francisco to, to you know acknowledge its troubled past with early Chinese immigrants. And that doesn't that didn't come out of you know for me that came out of. Black Lives Matter movement, you know, mm-hmm. we finally decided, you know what, your uncomfortableness is not my problem. That's your problem. And so we're going to do things that are right, not what make you feel comfortable. That's your personal problem, not ours. And so I think things have, have changed. Um, there are still institutions that, that need further change. My daughter goes to Holy Rosary, a private school in town, and many, many African-American middle-class residents in Antioch send their children to either private schools and now they have the option of a charter school and take their children to school with them to work, you know, wherever, whether they work in San Francisco, Oakland, or Santa Fe. Uh, my personal choice, I went into the elementary school that I was going for, and I just felt treated like I was in Section 8. The way they talked to me felt like they thought I was in Section 8 person who had moved here, and that they were doing me a favor wow. by mm. even having my child at the school. And I just, I was like, I mean, she's not coming here. <laughs> just, no. <laughs> And, and then when you look at the outcomes for the school district, you're like, 
you, your child can easily fall through the cracks. And then you're commuting an hour and a half away to go to work. I just, there's no way in, in the world that that was going to happen. Uh, but I think on the city side, we have certainly confronted some things where we're just making, we're making strides. We're, we're doing police reforms. We're, how, we're going to house homeless families and homeless individuals, particularly those who are chronic. Um, we're doing things, and that, that isn't a race issue. I mean, historically, homeless people in Antioch have been white. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it, it just, it's just going to make, I just don't understand, I don't understand what the big pool is. But. So, Mayor, you brought up the apology Antioch has issued to the Chinese community. I think it's really set off a conversation around you know, this horrific legacy in California of discrimination. Um, And yet we still do have so much of this debate, this racial reckoning, the broader one, being caught up in sort of politics and culture wars. I I just wonder, like, how are you thinking about that and, and, and trying to make this these important conversations less political and more substantive? I think the way you make these important conversations more substantive and uh, it's just by staying off social media. <laughs> Fair <laughs> play. I love that advice. <laughs> we, we need to have these conversations in real life. And, and that's where I continue to have my conversations. I don't engage on, on Twitter or social media and, and just put out information that that's not the place. To, that's not forum on KQD. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, Mayor Thorpe, thank you so much uh, for taking some time and, and chatting with us. We really appreciate it. All right. Thank you. Appreciate you guys too. And that's it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. I'm Guy Marzarati, and I want to give Marisa a special shout-out today to the Bay Podcast. We had a Bay Area guest uh, today, and I encourage anyone living in the region who wants to get kind of more connected to the daily news that's going on. Uh, The Bay Podcast comes out three times a week. They do an amazing job contextualizing a lot of local stories. And they have a new host, Erica Cruz Guevara, who's amazing. uh, And it's going to take that show to great places. So I encourage everyone to subscribe to The Bay. Hit that subscribe button. Subscribe to Political Breakdown while you're at it. ECG is the bomb. All right, that is going to do it for today. I'm Marisa Lagos. You can find me on Twitter at MLagos. And I'm Guy Marzarati. Take care, everyone. love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area, its history, its people, its unique blend of cultures, then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. 
And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support.